Hey there, I'm Raji Sohal, and this is our Sunday podcast for Halloween weekend. We learned about the fascinating origin story behind fireworks on Halloween in Vancouver. And we talked to a BC social media star whose social media accounts under the name Nerdy About Nature have gained him a massive following online. But first, the drama around Elon Musk buying Twitter. Let's talk about Twitter, shall we? Now that Elon Musk owns Twitter, everyone wants to know what he's going to do with it. Now, some users with big accounts have already left the app. Others are saying that when this is more official, when things start changing on Twitter, they're going to leave the app. Shonda Rhimes, a huge uh, producer, she said she's ready to abandon her nearly 2 million followers, saying not hanging around for whatever Elon has planned. Bye. Well, to talk about this some more, my guest is Tim Higgins. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal's San Francisco Bureau and the author of the book Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. It's so great to have you back on with us again now. Tim, last we spoke, Musk was actually trying to back out of the Twitter deal. And then now in a surprise move, he was back in the ring and then he's suddenly uh, changing things up really quickly. Why did Musk even change his mind in the first place, do you think? Well, it seems like he was trying just to get a better deal um, for what he was paying for Twitter. Uh, the, the market value of Twitter fell dramatically uh, after he put his bid in, uh, in part because uh, you see the, the advertising industry has taken a big hit. Uh, digital ads are, are declining. I mean, just you see in the last uh, few days, uh, YouTube and Facebook have seen revenue uh, retrenchments. And, um, you know, so he was like doing a lot. Like a lot of people might be doing when they're buying a house trying to get a better deal, except he had signed a contract that said he was going to buy it at a certain price. So Twitter went ahead to try to enforce that. And ultimately, it became clear that he probably wasn't going to be able to force them to try to get a new deal. And so he ultimately capitulated the, the world's biggest game of chicken, if you will. Yeah. So what do you think is next for the market value of Twitter? It's going to be an interesting um, few years. And now that he's taking it private, he can make some dramatic changes um, uh, as a private company that will be under less scrutiny from shareholders. It would be very hard as a publicly traded company at Twitter to do the kinds of things that he's talking about doing um, because he'll likely lose um, users. Uh, and when you're a publicly traded social media company, monthly user uh, engagement is a huge uh, metric for success. And so he'll be able to make these changes kind of behind the scenes and potentially take the company public again in a few years as, a, as kind of a different business model. So interesting. Uh, Tim, Elon Musk has made several kind of rapid fire moves since assuming ownership of Twitter on Thursday. He fired the uh, chief executive, the CFO. He made an appeal to advertisers saying that the platform was going to remain basically a respected destination. Is this what you'd expect that he would do? Yeah, having followed Elon for um, a, a while now, a long time, I was not surprised that he was moving quickly to get rid of some of the senior leadership. He clearly had uh, sparred with them privately and publicly. In, I'm thinking of the CEO. And, you know, here's a guy, Elon Musk, um, that wants to be the boss. He didn't buy it to put it on the shelf. He's going to get in there 
in the weeds, uh, in the tweets, if you will, and make changes. Uh, it's unclear exactly what his senior leadership team will look like. Uh, that's one of the things we're looking for um, in the coming days and weeks, uh, because Elon is, uh, you know, he might be the CEO, but he's uh, a busy guy. He's running t- Tesla. He's running SpaceX. He's got some other startups. And um, he's going to need some day-to-day people for operations to kind of uh, carry out his wishes. Um, The letter or the kind of announcement he made to advertisers is an interesting development, Um, in part because Elon had been, in a lot of ways, trashing the advertising business uh, of Twitter. Uh, It's part of kind of his concern uh, that Twitter, because it is largely dependent upon advertising for money, for revenue, is too beholden to the whims of advertisers that it uh, perhaps uh, uh, squashes freedom of speech on the platform. And he wants, uh, well, he said many times that he wants Twitter to be kind of a, a public square, that it does not beholden to advertisers' whims. But the, the reality is that's where he's getting his money. He might have dreams of, of making more money through subscriptions down the road or other uh, business ventures with Twitter. But in the near term, he's dependent upon those advertisers because he's going to start to have huge debt payments that he needs to make payments on because that's how, in part, he funded uh, the acquisition of Twitter. Yeah, that'll be uh, interesting. This new, uh, who knows what the advertising, uh, how he's planning on getting the advertising, attracting the advertising, when he's also promising that he's going to turn it into a more freewheeling private company, bringing back some banned users, including Trump. Um, if he, how would he balance that even with advertising, especially if people, he invites, uh, it to be a more open space where people are allowed to say what they want. How is he going to balance that with, uh, people making, for example, anti-Semitic remarks on Twitter? Well, it's going to be a huge challenge for him. He's kind of discovering it firsthand. Now we saw, uh, late last week, General Motors saying that, they were suspending their advertising on Twitter as they figure out how the platform is going to be different. Uh, these are big brands that spend a lot of money that don't want to be associated with um, kind of the sewer that is sort of, has been in the background on Twitter yeah. um, for a very long time. That, that'll be the challenge for, for Elon here. These social media companies for years now have been struggling with content moderation. Um, it's been something that's been very difficult and very time-consuming. And it's part of the reason why other companies or other buyers that have looked at Twitter over the years had, had passed in some rate, in some ways, because it is just a it is a hard slog. And this is going to be really one of the big challenges that Elon has as the owner of Twitter. And and when he does bring back Trump and, you know, the Kanye Wests of the world, people who uh, basically are very open with hate speech, people who might spew anti-Semitic messages freely, it makes me wonder, why does Musk want to provide a place for potentially hate speech to flourish? What's behind that? Yeah, it's, he's made the argument that he wants to see speech on the platform that he disagrees with. The, the idea that um, speech should have a place, even, if, with, even stuff that is ugly. Um, now, Musk would say that he wants to follow the laws of the land and, and that sort of thing. He doesn't want it to become a hellscape, if you will. Those were his words. So, uh, you know, these are these are the things that he, on one hand, says, you know, he wants it to be a warm place. On the other hand, he wants uh, <laughs> a freedom of expression. And how that meets in the middle, 
uh, we still don't know. Um, <laughs> it's hard to. Bl- I'm sorry. I'm just laughing at a warm place. Sorry. It's very hard to imagine Twitter <laughs> being that just now. And you know, you have some some big center left people in the U.S. saying they're going to leave the app based upon Elon Musk taking it over. Then you have conservatives saying uh, they're sticking with it because they expect their own following to double. I wonder, could the future success of, of Twitter maybe hinge on it becoming the platform for ideology and freewheeling speech? You know, it's interesting. Perhaps, I, I don't know. Uh, but listening to Elon um, talk and communicate over the last few months, it seems that Twitter is a part of a bigger idea that he wants to remake the app into. Uh, yes, he wants there to be this kind of platform for free speech and a communication platform, but he wants it to be so much more. He wants it to be um, what we call in Silicon Valley the, a super app, an app kind of to rule them all, uh, an app where you go and you do your kind of entire digital life lives from communication, but also commerce and entertainment, something more akin to what we see in China, very popular there, uh, but we've never really seen here in the in the U.S. or in North America, in part because of the power that the platforms on you know, the iPhone, the Apple, and Google have over the, the smartphone. We just haven't seen it develop here yet. So that's what Elon is talking about, turning Twitter into um, a super app that could generate money that way. Uh, so, you know, on one hand, he's going to have this really hard uh, moder- content moderation uh, ahead of him. But beyond that, he wants to make Twitter into something that we just have not really seen here um, in North America. And if he's successful on that, there could be a huge uh, new potential there um, as a platform uh, to generate uh, all sorts of uh, kind of users and, and revenue. So interesting. Tim, I know you've already written a book on Elon Musk, but do you think there's another one coming out at some point? Well, you, you know, with Elon, the, the, there's a never a really a great ending here because there's always some new adventure that he's off on to. That's so true. Tim, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you. Happy Halloween. It's Halloween tomorrow and we are talking about fireworks, which seem like they've just always been around, right? Always a part of Halloween celebrations and traditions. Although here in BC, it's banned by the majority of cities. You know, people still do them. But have you ever wondered what the history is of fireworks and how they kind of became a Halloween tradition in BC? My guest is Sabina Maglioco. She's a folklorist and and professor of sociological anthropology at University of British Columbia, and she joins us on the line to tell us more. Good morning, Sabina. Good morning, Raji. Well, I, you know, I often think about the origin of certain cultural traditions, but I hadn't thought about this connection uh, until I learned that it's something that you're more aware of. So, what is kind of the the history or genealogy of why we even do fireworks on Halloween in BC? Well, that is such an interesting question, and I'm so glad you asked, because fireworks, of course, originated in China. But by the 16th century, Europeans had uh, had borrowed the technology of gunpowder and were creating their own fireworks. But fireworks really became part of the the history of Halloween here in BC through the migration patterns of settler colonials. So 
settler colonials from England. We have a large number of those in the early history of BC, and they brought with them the tradition of setting off fireworks on the night of November 5th, which is in England, Guy Fawkes Night. Now, Guy Fawkes was a man who tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament in a plot in the early 1600s. And he was foiled. They found him with a basement full of gunpowder. They arrested him. They tried him. And they executed him. But afterwards, people celebrated the discovery of this plot and the uh, the saving of the, the English uh, parliament by... Um, setting off fireworks on Guy Fawkes night on the 5th of November and uh, parading a dummy dressed up as Guy Fawkes through the town, sometimes going door to door and asking penny for the guy, penny for the guy, and people would give them coins. Now, when the settler colonials from uh, England brought this tradition to BC, they they also encountered um, Chinese migrants, Chinese settler colonials who were very familiar with the tradition of setting off fireworks for different celebrations, such as the Lunar New Year. And so these two traditions came together and uh, coalesced, they kind of melded. And that gives us our tradition of setting off fireworks. Now, you might say, wait a minute, the 5th of November isn't October 31st. (laughs) Yes, Sabina. (laughs) But but it is close enough. And what happens when holidays are close together in the calendar like that is that there's some flexibility. Now, Halloween was already a time for those English settler colonials, a time of mischief and tricks and pranks. So all kinds of tricks um, were played around Halloween. So, for example, in rural areas, people might turn over outhouses. They might uh, take sacks of horse manure and set them on a neighbor's front porch and light them on fire, knock on the door and run away. Um, They might do other kinds of things like uh, clothesline uh, horse-drawn wagons, which actually could be a pretty dangerous prank. So this was already a time of year when people were playing pranks and uh, getting away with it. So the fireworks, the setting off of fireworks, became part of that whole tradition of misrule, of symbolic inversion, where all of the things that we normally wouldn't do at other parts of the year become licit, become uh, allowed on one day of the year. Wow, that is so fascinating. So what's the relationship then? You just like named all of these uh, pranks that people were pulling, including uh, overturning outhouses and other awful things. (laughs) How did uh, fireworks play into playing pranks? Well, fireworks are, again, an expression of celebration, Um, but they're also things that can be used to frighten people, to prank people. Uh, Uh, I'm a fairly recent migrant to British Columbia myself, and the first year that my spouse and I were here, somebody threw an M80 at our car and blew out the windows. Sorry about so, that. That's not a very nice yeah. welcome. That you asked me how fireworks can be part of a pranking tradition, and it's pretty clear that they can be. Yeah, for sure. That's a great example of it happening. Now, when did this all happen? Like, when did it become popular in B.C.? to do fireworks on Halloween? 
We don't have a lot of written records because this has always been an informal part of the tradition. Yeah. But we know that as recently as 100 years ago, this was already an issue because we have records from the city indicating that, you know, people were complaining about it. Newspapers were publishing little articles about uh, about it. There were laws uh, uh, kind of trying to put parameters around the mischief. Uh, we know that in other parts of Canada and in uh, North America, for example, the nights of Halloween and the period around Halloween were often called Mischief Night and Devil's Night. And so this is really not just a BC phenomenon. It's a, it, it's a phenomenon throughout North America where these nights are often nights of pranking and playing tricks. Okay, of course, Sabina, now in many BC cities, uh, fireworks are are banned, uh, but people keep doing them. So I wonder if as a folklorist and a a professor of sociological anthropology, what your perspective is on how hard is it to remove a well-established tradition to ban something like fireworks and actually prevent people from doing them? Right, that's a really good question, and there's two things here that make it especially difficult to change tradition. One is that people tend to want to repeat the traditions that they grew up with. So there are many people in BC who remember uh, growing up with fireworks, who remember, you know, going maybe with their friends or maybe even with a parent to buy fireworks uh, and setting them off in this celebratory manner. And they want to repeat this experience with their kids. And then those kids are going to grow up and they're going to want to repeat the experience. So we have lots of people who have this strong association of fireworks with this time of year. It just isn't Halloween without fireworks for so many British Colombians. And that is very difficult to change. But then you also have the fact that Halloween is a festival of symbolic inversion. It is literally a time when all of our skeletons come out of the closet, and those actions that are usually forbidden, like asking strangers for candy, become something that is allowed for one night of the year. So there's this sense that anything is allowed and that it doesn't really matter what the rules are, what the laws are on this one night. Everything is turned upside down and uh, things that are normally not permitted are okay. So it's especially hard to crack down on the breaking of rules because of the force of tradition and also because it is a festival of symbolic inversion. So interesting. Sabina, thanks for all of that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We are talking about a social media account that's from someone here in BC that is massive. Now, there are so often social media accounts that go viral for all the reasons that you think are wrong with society. But Ross Reed is the creator of the popular Instagram and TikTok account called Nerdy About Nature. His videos about nature on the West Coast have resonated with millions of people online on TikTok. Uh, some of uh, some of his posts have gotten 1.4 million likes. And it's time for us to welcome Ross to the program. Good morning, Ross. Hey, how's it going? Great. Now, I love your account. Uh, before we get into the specifics of it, why did you start Nerdy About Nature? Um, you know, it honestly started as a joke. Um, a few years ago, right before COVID picked up, I was just kind of, you know, I work as a filmmaker, so I get to travel to some pretty cool places. And I've just always found myself immersed in these amazing um, outdoor environments and just wanted to learn about them and engage with them. So I'd like go home and read about them and kind of nerd out and find out all this stuff about it 
And then I'd be on like hikes with my friends and I would just start rambling on about some cool theater. And they're just like, Oh my God, dude, you're driving us nuts. Like you need to find an outlet for this, like an Instagram account. So I started it as a joke. And then when COVID happened, I didn't have any film work. So I just kind of kept the ball rolling with it. And it's become a great little way to have fun and educate people about the world around us. Now, some of your production on it looks like, gosh, a single post might take a while. Maybe you even have to script it a little bit. You, you do add a little <laughs> bit of production to it. Do you find a way to get paid for this in, in any way? Um, no, I mean, right now, the only way that it's like really supported is through Patreon, um, which is just like a kind of a crowdsourcing way of people, like people can subscribe to it on monthly amounts and they can set their amount from $1 to however much they want to support it. And it all just kind of goes towards creating this like open education platform. I'm not really, I guess I'm still kind of finding a way to like make it quote unquote um, sustainable in like a monetary sense. But as far as it goes, like it's just, you know, it's just a really fun thing to do. And I feel like it just is natural to be kind of like giving back and working with a community rather than like trying to just continue to sell things to people on Instagram. Like, I feel like we're all kind of pretty burnt out on that. Like myself, I hate getting ads. So it's like, why would I want to be the person creating those ads? You know? Amen to that, Ross. <laughs> doesn't okay. make sense. Doesn't feel right. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that specifically in reference to nature, right? Like it's a nature appreciation account. Right. So it might be uh, counterintuitive to do that. But I know so many, I guess, influencers do do that. Do you consider yourself an influencer? Well, I mean, I've kind of had to warm up to the idea just out of like necessity, I feel like. Although, again, like I don't feel like I'm... Um, quote unquote influencing in the way that like the standard definition goes. Like I'm, you know, especially like you said, like it's, it's a, it's an account that kind of, it tries to, I'm trying to like work to expand people's mind and, and cons like understanding of the concept of nature and recognize that it's, there's no separation between us and what we quote unquote call nature. You know, it's like, we're all part of this same system, these same um, global economic or ecological systems. So it's really about trying to reframe that and, to me, it doesn't feel right trying to like use that influencer role to be selling things that you know cause further detriment and harm to the same system that we all live amongst. And you know, there's not too many brands or folks out there actually doing things that work within that system. So I'm trying to kind of you know reframe that and get people thinking about things a little bit differently. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. So nerdy about nature. You use this account to to post uh, specific stuff to BC's coastal ecosystems. You pay particular attention to the role of old growth forests, lots of posts on old growth forests there. Why do you think your posts are so popular? Like, what do you think uh, you're doing that is resonating with your audiences? Um, That's a great question. I think, I, I honestly think that in like this world of social media where we see so much um, fakeness in a sense of people trying to like put on a facade and be something that they're not or trying to again like you know upsell products and, and be kind of like fitting into this like model of capitalism that we've created that it's really refreshing for people to see somebody um, just being authentic and like talking about something that they love and for no other reason not to try to make a buck not to try to sell them something but to try to just like expand their understanding of something i think that's really refreshing in this world where we're not used to to seeing that like that's not a model that is like you know boasted and like the people like strive to be it's like everybody's trying to kind of fit into the rat race in some way some cog in the whole machine that we've created and that's i don't think people are used to seeing people being authentic and real and enjoying what they do so i think that kind of naturally brings some some brevity to it 
Yeah, I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's, you've got this great personality and you're very casual in these like snippets of education about nature. And I think these Mm. days people don't necessarily have the time to sit down and watch an entire documentary about BC nature. And so it's these (laughs) little uh, tid tid, uh, bits and bites that people can kind of um, handle. But on the topic of popularity, I'm so curious what has been the most popular post on your account and did it surprise you? Um, what is the most popular one? Well, I think on Instagram, like one that recently blew up, um, I have a podcast also called Nerdy About Nature. Um, and I sat down with a friend of mine, Julia Huggins, who's like a biogeochemist, and she works with oceans studying microbes. And we talked about like a kind of nuanced, um, or that little snippet was a snippet from the podcast where she was talking about some nuances of the way that climate change is affecting our oceans and leading to like lack of oxygen and deeper waters and further separation. And it's just this kind of complicated thing to get across in a minute, which all these subjects really are. There's a lot more nuance to all of this, which is kind of why I started a podcast so I could have longer conversations. But um, that post really kind of blew up out of nowhere. Like I didn't expect it. She certainly didn't expect it. And she's like overwhelmed and stoked because all of a sudden this kind of, um, you know, very specific type of, of change that like people, scientists are like witnessing and trying to document is like now exposed to 1.4 or 1.2 million people. I think it was just in like a, a week or two. Yeah. Amazing. Um, which is pretty great. A pretty amazing scientific outreach, you know, like as far as communications go, like, I don't know how much, um, you know, like a David Attenborough or, um, David Suzuki piece reaches like how many people, but to reach 1.4 million people or 1.2 million people, however many, and open their minds up to this idea is a pretty, pretty cool thing to do. Yeah. You mentioned David Attenborough there. Is, is that kind of the marker for you? Is that, who do you model yourself after when you go, go on to record these videos? <laughs> I mean, honestly, no one really. I mean, like I've always been a, a Attenborough fan for sure. I feel like everybody in my generation kind of is, yeah. but um, you know, it's interesting Like you mentioned, like trying to cram everything into like a quick minute video. Like I, I never like set out to do this. It's not something that I like strive to do, but then like kind of enforced on me by the regiments of like social media. It's like, okay, I only have one minute to tell people about this really cool thing. So then I end up talking really fast and kind of cramming it into this one minute fast paced thing that a lot of people it, it resonates with a lot of people, but there are also people who don't enjoy it. And it's like, you know, to each their own, like everybody likes what they like. And, and I'm glad that this is kind of hitting a, a cue with certain uh, audiences and demographics, but it's definitely something that's just kind of evolved naturally. I can't say I, I planned it or think that, thought about it too much, you know? Well, Ross, all the power to you. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air. You're account nerdy about Aww. nature. And um, it's funny, whenever yeah. I, I watch one of the videos on it, I can see who else has liked it. And then I always have more respect for them after <laughs> I see that they have liked it. Awesome. They're, so, they're yeah. so enjoyable. It's such a great account. And good luck uh, to you and keep it up. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a great project and stoked that people are enjoying it. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.